In the second season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great works of literature that have something to impart to us about the nature and importance of love. If it's true, as it has been said, that Eros is the brother of poetry, then what better place to look for love than amongst the writers and poets and to share in their own experiences of it. And the great thing about turning to such writers is that they don't edify. When speaking of love, order is seldom without chaos. Light is not without darkness, and hope not without disappointment. They all agree on this, though, that despite its many forms and contradictions, love is no small thing, and always, always leaves us a little richer in spirit. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode 5, Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov. In this episode that, of course, in this season is going to center around love, I'd rather start out with a few quotes about hell. Sartre famously said, hell is other people. Pat Benatar sang, hell is for children. Now, these sound like weird throwaway things, but they do connect in some way to a couple of the views characters hold in this book. But more importantly, we're going to end with Dostoevsky's quote, where he said, what is hell? I maintain it is the suffering of being unable to love. Yeah, great quote. And we'll definitely get into what he means by that. But first, as usual, a very brief summary. So, The Brothers Karamazov was written by Fyodor Dostoevsky in 1880. Actually, remarkably, it was dictated by him to his wife and stenographer. It is his last and usually taken to be his greatest novel. It's a story of patricide, and it centers around the clashes of values and worldviews of the Karamazov family. At the same time, it also embodies the moral and spiritual dissolution of Russian society of the 1870s. Okay, in in a novel full of contrasting characters, an obvious standout is between two of the brothers, Alyosha and Ivan. We get the obvious, we have uh, religious spirituality on one side versus an atheistic enlightenment. But I think we can look at it in a different way, uh, building up on something that you brought up in an earlier episode, the, uh, the Frankenstein episode, the idea of a matriarchal view of this versus a patriarchal view. Yeah, you're, you're right. I think that one of Dostoevsky's major themes in the novel is the contrast between a newer patriarchal world and an older matriarchal one. I mean, to take the patriarchal world first, notice the the near-complete absence of mothers in the novel. They all die very young. Most notably, of course, the mother of the Karamazov brothers. And I think it's significant that Alyosha, the, the young monk and the central protagonist of the story, uh, 
is the one that fondly recalls his mother at a young age and who goes back to his father's town to see his mother's grave. Well, on the other hand, Ivan, the intellectual of the family and middle brother, has absolutely no memory of his mother, even though he's four years older than Alyosha. I think that by tying Alyosha to his mother like this, Dostoevsky places him in that older matriarchal world, one that emphasizes the kind of unconditional love found between mother and child. You know, it's interesting, the psychologist Eric Fromm, in his great little book called The Art of Loving, talks about the importance of both motherly and fatherly love in the development of a child. And fatherly love, he says, as opposed to motherly love, has more to do with the fulfillment of expectations. Now, the negative side to this is, of course, that because it's the sort of love that the child has to deserve and so can fail to merit, love can be withdrawn from them at any moment. Clearly not the sort of fragile and unstable situation any child wants to find themselves in. But anyway, another interesting thing here, as I mentioned, is Ivan's lack of memory compared to Alyosha's. The fact that Ivan forgets or doesn't want to remember reveals his unwillingness to face his past, his blood ties, and the larger tradition and world from which he came. Like the goddess Athena, who was born from Zeus's head and so without a mother, Ivan's wisdom and vision of the world is one that's completely severed from all connection with the past. One that stresses starting up everything anew, without precedent, without the older world as its foundation and lifeline. The sort of vision that, to quote Protagoras, makes man the measure of all things. And what sort of view is this? Well, this is Dostoevsky's patriarchal world. Unlike the older matriarchal world, which emphasizes ties to ancestors, to the soil and the earth, and to the acceptance of natural phenomena, the patriarchal view, which is here represented by Ivan, is one without an umbilical cord, without ties to Mother Earth, and one which is all about human design, engineering, and control over nature. Now, given this, we might perhaps begin to see how it is, in some very important ways, Ivan fails to properly love. I mean, think about it. Because he can't accept his ties to nature, he can't really love others and things as they are, often dirty and animal-like, with their streaks of the ugly. And because he sees suffering as an objection to creation, and not something part and parcel of it, he can't really love the world in its entirety. He can't 
Like his brother Alyosha and his spiritual mentor, Father Zosima, simply be grateful for life itself, which is a gift, remember, that is bestowed by mothers. Uh, Focusing in the next part on the character of Ivan, we get a kind of a, a twisted version of Plato's idea of a love of knowledge and that being the, the highest level that one can achieve. Uh, here we get it pushed to a, a kind of toxic level and it becomes this kind of dangerous form of pride or self-love. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, let me try to respond to that by first saying something about the mythological figure of Prometheus. Something that I I briefly mentioned in our last episode on Shelley's Frankenstein. You see, in some ways, I think Prometheus is just as relevant here in this story, in particular with respect to getting a better understanding of Ivan. Okay, so what did Prometheus do exactly? Well, we remember that, first of all, he created human beings out of clay. But he also made sure to go on to shape them after the image of the gods and to walk upright so that they might look upwards towards the heavens. In other words, he designed them to be noble, prideful, and godlike. What's more, when early on humans were struggling to survive on earth due to the harsh elements and all the predators, Prometheus defied the will of Zeus and stole fire from the gods and gave it to humankind. Because of the gift of fire, humans could now, well, defy the seasons, rule the animals, and basically conquer the earth and go on to construct a civilization. Okay, well, think about it. Like Prometheus, who rejects Zeus, Ivan rejects God. Like Prometheus, who sees Zeus as not doing anything at all to help humans, Ivan sees God as a neglectful and irresponsible father. And like Prometheus, who assumes authority and whose gift enables domination over the earth, Ivan assumes authority over God and wants to recreate the world in his own image. Basically, Ivan becomes the man-god. And in so doing, he refuses to bow down to anyone or anything at all. He denies that he's made in the image of God. He sees himself as completely independent. He's a plant without its rhizome. Now, I think there's something dangerous about being an Ivan a Promethean figure full of titanic pride who denies he's a created being and instead a being who totally makes himself. In other words, there's something chilling in thinking that there is nothing we lack that we cannot provide for ourselves, that we are entirely self-sufficient beings and the cause of our own existence, that we have a kind of self-dependence and self-creating capacity which impersonates that of God. That we are beings who entirely make ourselves 
and are only what we make of ourselves. Well, why is this sort of pride bad? Well, because if we see ourselves this way, the more we will be utterly incapable of receiving anything, including others. When our pride manifests itself, not only as lack of humility, but as total self-reliance, it means closing ourselves off from others. Well, this is Ivan. In his pride, he is hard and shut in himself, alienated from others. He's an eagle that lives high above the messy crowds. And this is why his father says of him, quote, Ivan loves nobody. Ivan is not one of us. End of quote. And why his brother, Dmitri, says, quote, Ivan is a grave. End of quote. You know, it's interesting. The psychologist Carl Jung saw genuine love relationships as being based on the imperfection of both parties. Why is this? Well, because the perfect has no need of the other. But weakness does. Weakness and imperfection seek support. And, as Jung says, they do not confront their partner with anything that might force them into an inferior position. Something that can't really be said about Ivan and his relationships. Uh, Continuing further with Ivan, uh, we get the idea that his love or his uh, quote-unquote love is one for humankind, but not for humans. This is directly contrasted with uh, Father Zosima, who really is looked at as inhabiting the truest or purest form of Dostoevsky's view. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in many ways, Father Zosima's views do represent Dostoevsky's own vision. So, well, what are these views? Well, Father Zosima counsels an active, persistent, personal love. For him, genuine love is not about loving human beings in general, or as a group, or in the abstract. This is Ivan's view, but it's an intellectual or philosophical one, and he is but a detached observer. Father Zosima's approach, though, is a, is a more earthy, organic, and authentic one. He's all about loving individuals, our neighbors, those closest to us. It's a bottom-to-top approach. It's also about accepting individuals for who they are, with all of their flaws. It's Christ's love, a non-judgmental love, a love of man also in his sin, a love like that of St. Francis of Assisi that's willing to kiss open sores. And it's one that involves hard work and, and continuous small moments of giving, It has nothing to do with the the grand gesture. Now, obviously, Zosima's way is a much more challenging way than loving from a distance. 
Loving from a distance is easier since from way up above, you can't really focus in on what you're seeing. But close up, we see individuals for who they are, with all their messy particulars, their frailties and flaws. Well, this is exactly what Ivan can't do. And it's why he can't really love. In fact, he says it himself. Quote, I could never understand how one can love one's neighbors. It's just one's neighbors to my mind that one can't love, though one might love those at a distance. For anyone to love a man, he must be hidden. For as soon as he shows his face, love is gone. End of quote. Now, why does he think this? Why can't Ivan even sit comfortably at the table with his own brothers? Well, I touched upon it briefly earlier, but it clearly has something to do with the fact that he has divorced himself from his earthy animal side, which he sees as beastly and repulsive, and instead has associated himself entirely with the the pure, the saintly, and the ideal. But when you divorce yourself from your bestial self like this, you of course begin to see yourself as better than others. Compared to you, everyone else is imperfect and gross. So now, not only can you not connect with others and accept them for who they are, but they don't like you either because you give them the sense that you are above and superior to them. So in effect then, by repressing his body and his earthy, sensual side, Ivan has cut himself off from genuine personal love and compassion, love of one's neighbor in their full reality. You know, according to St. Augustine, God has given us a proper place in the grand scheme of things, midway between the angels and the beasts. And any attempt to deny our creatureliness and assume the status of an angel will, at the end of the day, leave us no better than the beasts. Well, this is Ivan's situation. He's no better than that which he tried to avoid. Now, on the other hand, the sort of love that Father Zosima counsels is deeply rooted to the earth. It involves fidelity to the soil, to the dirt. Kiss the earth and love it with an unceasing, consuming love, he exclaims. In effect, Zosima holds the deeper wisdom that genuine compassion and love for others is only possible if one accepts one's own primal and earthly humanity and doesn't try to rise above what one sees as undignified tendencies not worthy of acceptance. But anyway, for Father Zosima, I think the most important problem, the most serious obstacle to love, is to be found in the ailments, the the sickness of modernity. That is, in our modern, radical individualism, egocentrism, 
and materialism. In other words, the problem with many people, again including Ivan, is that they are egoistic in orientation. They are separated by their greed. And they think that freedom, self-realization, and security is rooted in their riches and in their independence from their fellow men and women. And that self-denial is a form of self-betrayal. But in this way, says Father Zosima, they really fail to understand that genuine love actually requires the negation of selfhood, and that security is to be found in social solidarity, in communion with others, not in self-determination and separation. Modernity does not understand that self-reliance cuts us off from the sources of fulfillment, and that genuine love begins with self-abnegation and surrender. All of this is building towards a kind of inevitable conclusion from Dostoevsky's point of view that, that, that every action, every action is affected by something else and affects something else. And it makes us kind of wonder about, well, okay, what is the result then when we take that into our understanding of love? Yeah, well, Father Zosima, like you said, thinks that we are all accomplices in this world, that we are all complicit in the suffering that exists here, that we are responsible for everything and everyone. And what he seems to mean by this is that given that we are all bound together on this earth, it must be true that everything that everyone does has some bearing, some effect, some influence on others, whether they know it or not. I mean, Dostoevsky said as much in another one of his books called Demons. Quote, In sinning, each man sins against all, and each man is at least partly guilty for another's sin. There is no such thing as isolated sin. I think another way of putting all of this is that we are all constantly sowing seeds of ourselves wherever we go and whatever we do. We may not be paying attention to what we're doing, but someone else is. Our actions may have a lasting influence on the child across the street from us. There are no insignificant acts. So then what could be more obvious than this? That with genuine love comes the responsibility to pay attention and to put down as many good seeds as we can. Love is a teacher.
If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Thomas Mann, Death in Venice.